Once again, thank you for joining us on this Lord's Day as we continue our studies through the book of Esther. The book of Esther, it confronts us in our modern world with the unseen reality of the presence of God. The unseen reality that God is among us. In this book, we have the the surprising fact that God's name is never mentioned. And yet the hand of God is everywhere present in the book of Esther. We must be careful in our own lives not to conclude that since God is not mentioned, that God is not present. God is everywhere present. Even when we don't see him, even when he seems invisible, God is always there. We must see with eyes of faith how the the unseen Lord of all creation is ordering his sovereign purposes over all of the events in history. And he is doing so by his unseen hand. God is in control. We saw the sovereign power of God in the first two chapters when and where he is orchestrating and organizing a beauty contest in order to fulfill his purposes. Our Lord displays that there is no thing that is beyond the reaches of his sovereign hand. Even a tacky thing, such as a beauty contest. God was fulfilling, even in a beauty contest, fulfilling his purposes. And saying all the while to all of his people, do you see? Do you see? Are you learning that, that God is on the field? Even when he is most invisible, God is there. There are no events in all of history that God does not stand as the conductor, orchestrating all things for his glory and for the good of his people. This is what our sin-sick world is utterly blind to. The world says, where is God? All the while, God is staring them in the face. They cannot see God because they are blind to the truth of God. This is why we are called to live by faith and not by sight. Knowing that all the events of life, in all of the events of life, God is at work. He is, brothers and sisters, forwarding his plans, pursuing his purposes. God is in control. We concluded our last study with Mordecai. Pleading with Esther to go to King Ahasuerus on behalf of the Jews who were in danger of being annihilated, as the Bible says. He says to Esther in Esther chapter 4, verse 14, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai is saying to Esther, in essence, your moment of destiny has arrived. The moment for which you were created has come. All of the moments of all of your life have been for this very moment. You have been fashioned by God, shaped by God, that you might be prepared for this moment to stand for God and for his people. After wrestling with the consequences of coming to the king uninvited, Esther finally says to Mordecai in verse 16, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, 
night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him to do. Esther resolves to put the cause of God and his people before the possibility of painful consequences. She says, if I perish, I perish. Even if it means that faithfulness to my God will require the the laying down of my own life, then by God's grace, so be it. If I perish, I perish. That is true faith, brothers and sisters. That is truly living by faith, even if it costs you your own life. If I perish, I perish. As we proceed this morning, within the next five chapters, there are, or in this chapter five, there are four things that I would like us to notice this morning. Number one, the king's heart in the hand of the king of kings. Number one, the king's heart in the hand of the king of kings. We have heard in the fourth chapter that Esther has not seen the king for 30 days. And it was surely a death sentence to approach the king's throne unannounced without being called by the king. Esther said in verse of chapter four, verse 11, all the king's servants And the people know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except to the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Now, don't let the the drama of this event, of this moment, go past your minds. The king, he is residing behind a royal veil, if you will, Esther has woken up that morning after fasting for three days, three nights. She's put on her robes. She's preparing herself to die. She's no guarantee that she will survive the decision that she's made. She's acting, living by faith. She's literally putting on her her robes by faith. Esther has gone past the king's guards, past the king's servants, And now she was preparing herself to stand before the king. Those whom she passed by knew that this woman is heading to her certain demise. She is going to die. History tells us that King Ahasuerus was a man who was extremely intelligent. But he was also a man that could be irrational at times. When a storm destroyed a bridge that Ahasuerus was attempting to build across Hellas Point. It was straight of water there between Greece and the east. The king ordered, after that that bridge was destroyed, the king ordered that his soldiers go into that water and lash the water 300 times for the water's insubordination. The king ordered that shackles be thrown into the water to constrain the waters for its lack of submission. This is the man that Esther is preparing to stand before. Are you getting the image now? The temperament of this man is unpredictable. Esther knows that that this mission that she has been sent on, it's a suicide mission. And yet, look what happened. Verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, 
she won favor in his sight. When the king saw his queen, she won favor in his sight. And he did what? He held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. That was a, a sign that you are pardoned from death. Approach. And it was customary that when you approached the king after he had extended his golden scepter, that you were to kiss the scepter and thank him, as, as it were, for the grace extended to you for not taking your life. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. We must be careful. Don't read this point. Do you see the hand of God in the midst of this, this hopeless situation? She should die. And yet the king sees Esther and he is pleased. Can you see? Can you see that even the heart of the king is in the hands of the king of kings? There is this, this is no chance happening. This is no, whoo, Esther, you really got away with that one. Esther, you were lucky this time. The king was in a good mood today. Or he must really love you, Esther. No, that would be a, a naturalistic response or a, a naturalistic assessment by naturalistic unbelievers. Only unbelievers think that way. Whoo, you got lucky. Ooh, that was close. You just made it by the skin of your teeth. Luck does not exist, brothers and sisters. You should never use the word. You should omit it from your vocabulary. There's no such thing as luck. This encounter was the work of God, again, as the conductor, orchestrating his purposes. He is bending the heart of King Ahasuerus in order to fulfill his goodwill. Can you see? All of the events in life are as God wills and not as men choose. Do you see that? All of the events of life are as God wills and not as men choose. This should be encouraging to your lives. Why should this be encouraging? Because in the everyday events of life, of family, of work, etc., we know that all of our ways and all of the ways of men are being directed and governed by God. The events of life are not being governed by, by seemingly random choices or chance happenings, no. The events of life are being fulfilled by the eternal decrees of a sovereignly gracious and good God. All of the events, one may say, but what about my free will? My response would be, what about your free will? Am I not doing what I want to do by my own free will? I'll ask you a question. And I hope that my Arminian friends would someday answer that question honestly and biblically. Is God sovereign over all things or is God not sovereign over all things? Is God sovereign over all things or is he not sovereign over all things? He cannot be partially sovereign over all things. He cannot be 99.9% sovereign over all things. He's either sovereign over all things or he's not sovereign over all things. And you can't answer yes, but that's not an answer. Not a biblical answer. 
That's a rationalistic answer. That's an answer that makes you feel better about yourselves and about your life and about your circumstances and about the bad things that have happened. But if God is in control, then God is in control. Ask the king of Babylon. Ask Nebuchadnezzar, who discovered this truth of the complete sovereignty of God the hard way, walking on his roof of the palace, looking at all of the vastness of his kingdom. And upon looking at all the vastness of his kingdom, I'm going to turn there in Daniel chapter 3 or 4. He begins to say, look at all that I've done. Look at all that I've made. Look at all that I've created with my own hands. And God responds to him while the words are still in his mouth. You will crawl on the ground like an animal. And do you know what happened? He crawled on the ground like an animal. His nails grew long like beasts. He ate grass of the field like a cow. Just so that God could show him who is truly in control. Finally, the Lord allowed this man to come to his senses. The Lord allows this man to come to his senses. The Lord allows this man to come to his senses. And when he does so, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He blesses the Lord. He does what any man who understands the sovereignty of God does. He blesses the Lord. He honors the Lord with this declaration. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are like nothing to him. And he is accounted to, and he does according to his will. The host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This from a pagan king who has learned that God is sovereign over all things, even his own kingdom that he thought he built. The raising up of kingdoms by God, the tearing down of kingdoms by God. How does that strike you? That God would even use evil men of the world and the wrath of men of the world to praise him and to glorify him. How does that strike you? Brothers and sisters, it is in the everyday moments of life that God is reassuring us that our lives are not being controlled by events that are beyond us. That they are being controlled by the one who is our loving, gracious, heavenly father. Amen. The events of life are not beyond our control. No, they are beyond our control. They're being controlled by God. The king sees Esther and he's pleased with Esther. She won favor. She won favor when so many did not win favor. She won the favor of standing before God when so many did not live to tell the story. Why Esther? Out of all who have approached the king uninvited, who have not lived to tell the story, why has Esther survived? Was it simply the, the beauty that the Bible has attested or attributed to her? Was it simply that Ahasuerus was in a good mood that day? Or was it that the heart of this king was being softened by the one who hardens the hearts of all men or softens the hearts of those who he chooses for his purposes, for his glory. Ahasuerus is pleased and God is saying, yes, do you see the one who has made him pleased? The king sees his queen and, she, and he is pleased with her and God is saying, do you see the one who has softened his heart? 
just as the genes of Esther to appeal to the eyes of Ahasuerus were in the hand of the sovereign Lord, so also the, the heart of the king was in the hands of the one who fashioned it for his glory and for his honor. And so also in your lives. Your lives are in the hands of the sovereign Lord of the universe. All of your times, all of your days are in the hands of the one who has fashioned you for your for his honor and for his glory. And this, it should be once again encouraging. It is a profound truth. It is. You must understand that you must cling to this truth that God is in control. God is in control. God is in control. Cling to this truth. Don't let go of this truth. When the circumstances of life come, perplexing circumstances come your way, confusing circumstances come your way, frustrating circumstances come your way, cling to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Not the, the, the half or the partial, the almost complete sovereignty of God, the full control sovereignty of God. Let it be the pillow that you rest your head on at night when circumstances in your life are beyond your depths. And let me ask you, have you yet been to the place where the circumstances in your life are behind, beyond your depths? If you have not, then you will. Why do I say this? Esther was saved from certain death by approaching the king's throne, right? She was saved from that. But we must not look to this story as being the rule for how God always acts for his people. Do you understand that? Esther was saved from death. But you must not see Esther's being saved from death as the rule for how God always acts with his, with his people all the time. The covenant Lord, in his infinite wisdom, does not always choose to graciously save his people from physical harm and death. Do you hear that? Brothers and sisters, for every Esther there is a Jeremiah. Who was stoned to death. For every apostle John there was a, a Stephen who was stoned to death. For every Martin Luther there is a John Huss burned at the stake. It may not always please the Lord to step in and graciously rescue his people. Gloriously rescue his people from certain death. It may not be what God desires on that time in that time. There have been many others in, in history, men and women, who have marched into the face of death and they have said, if I perish, I perish. And guess what? They perished. They died. How does that strike you? We think, well, if God did it for Esther, with the old church that I would come from, if he did it for them, he'll do it for you. No, he won't. It, he may not. He is not obligated to save you the way that you think he should save you. Not so. Not so. The Lord has not promised that he will deliver you and I on our terms. God has not promised to do what we want when we want it and how we want it. Many of us come from churches that taught if you have enough faith, there is nothing impossible with God. 
Our supposed great faith became the object and focus and not our God and his sovereign will. It was deemed a foolish thing. Hear me when I say it was it was deemed a foolish thing to pray. Let God's will be done. From the false religion, false teaching that I came from, that I was raised in a foolish thing. How many of you have heard that before? It's foolish. Don't pray God's will be done. They will say, you know, God's will. Don't pray his will be done. And this was especially highlighted when it came to prosperity and health. Don't pray God will. If God wills, I'll be prosperous. God wants you to be prosperous. A foolish thing. Don't pray. If God wants me to be healthy, I'll be healthy. A foolish thing. I can remember there were many in my past who have prayed That God would heal them from terminal diseases. And you can hardly be a Christian if you do not believe that God does not heal. God heals. Can anyone doubt that God is the one who heals? No. God heals. He's the sovereign Lord. He can do as he pleases. He can raise the dead if he chooses to do so. And if it pleases him, he's able. But it may not always please the Lord to answer prayers of healing and deliverance in the ways that we expect. It may please the Lord to answer prayers of healing and deliverance in other ways. What do I mean? When my father was taken to the hospital, the day he passed, my mother was there praying in faith. My sister, wherever she's at, was there praying in faith. I was there praying in faith. Pastor John was there praying in faith. Pastor Zay was there praying in faith. What were we praying? That God would heal him. All of us had faith. You could, if, we, if there was ever a day when we had faith, it was that day. If there was ever a time that we believed that God could do something miraculous, it was that day. And God answered. God answered that prayer. Brothers and sisters, God answered that prayer according to his own good will and pleasure. My father was healed. God healed him by taking him to heaven. God healed him by taking him to God. The father healed my dad by taking him from his sin sick body. A body that would not endure a body that would live in pain. And took him into paradise. It wasn't the healing that we were expecting. But it was the will of God for his life. And listen, it was a better healing than we were asking for. You want him healed, I'll do you one better. I'll give him a new body. I'll take him where there is no darkness. I'll take him into my glory. And rest assured, my dad is not upset that that happened. He's better off than I. God does not say to us on every occasion it will be for us as it was for Esther. For every Esther, there was a Stephen, brothers and sisters, stoned to death because he said in another context, if I perish, I perish. The king's heart was in the heart, was in the hand of the king of kings. So, too, is your heart and so, too, is mine. 
and knowing that God is ordering and orchestrating all things for his glory. Let that be a comfort to your soul. If the psalmist said in Psalm 31, 5, my times are in your hands. Secondly, notice the wisdom of Esther. The king said to Esther, verse 3, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you up to half of my kingdom. I can imagine when he says this, there's a pause on the lips of Esther. And then finally, she says in verse four, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. When we first read this, we, we may tend to wonder what on earth is Esther up to? There has been a decree across the empire to kill, to annihilate all of the Jews. And Esther is planning a banquet. Your people are in trouble. And you're planning a banquet. Esther is not being irresponsible. Rather, Esther is being wise as a serpent. The king offers to give her up to half of the kingdom. And you would think this is the perfect time. Ask now. Ask now. Those of you kids who are here know the perfect time to ask your parents for something. That good mood that they're in. Now's the time. I used to say to my father when he would come home, what's up, pops? How was your day? And my dad always would know. What do you want? Ask the king. Now is the time. But rather she invites the king and Haman to a banquet. A banquet. Listen. Why a banquet? Because Esther is wise enough to know that if there is anything that we've learned about King Ahasuerus... It is that he loves banquets. When we are first introduced to King Ahasuerus, what's going on? There is a banquet that has lasted 180 days. And it's being climaxed by a seven-day banquet. Or the, 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 the after party of the after party. He's invited all of his princes, all of the officials. What is the scene? It is this lavish banquet. Esther is being wise. Now, the king did not think that Esther would take him seriously when he suggested you could have up to half of my kingdom. He's being polite. He's saying there is nothing that you could ask for that will not be given to you. He's being facetious, if you will. You guys know that kind of language when you tell someone, come over anytime. You don't really mean come over anytime. You mean let's. Plan a day, we'll work it out, we'll see if our schedules work. You don't mean come over any time, but you're being kind, you're being polite. This is the same kind of language that Ahasuerus is using. Up to half of my kingdom, whatever you want. There is a thoughtfulness, though, to what Esther is doing. She's preparing a banquet. She's preparing the best circumstances that will help her to make her plead to the king. There is a thoughtfulness. She's not rushing in. Now, for others, like Mordecai, the actions of Esther could be viewed as being foolish, reckless. We are going to die, and you're planning a banquet. Why aren't you pleading with the king? Do it now. Do it now. Brothers and sisters, there is a commendable caution in spiritual service, meaning this. God is rarely in a hurry. Have you learned that in your own life? That God is rarely in a hurry. And often, 
taking our time, not rushing in, is use of good and great godly wisdom. Not assuming, not jumping the gun, not jumping to conclusions, not rushing into a situation is often good godly wisdom. We must acknowledge also that caution, caution, patience, too much patience can often be a smokescreen for unbelief. Those who say things like, I want to consider all the possibilities. I want to consider all the angles. They're just stalling because they don't believe. I'll become a member. I'm just taking my time. I'll turn to the Lord in due time. I'll begin to share the gospel in in due time. Smoke screens, brothers and sisters. Stalling. What are you waiting for? Those are things that you should not wait for. Those are things you should do right now. Get right to it. We must not wait to begin to apply ourselves to the things of God. We must not be lazy. We must not be lazy when it comes to our church attendance, our church membership, our church involvement. You wouldn't miss work if you had a cough. But you'll miss church. You wouldn't miss work if you were tired. You won't push through it. You would be there. You would find a babysitter. If it was time for you to go to work. But you won't do so. If it's time to go worship the Lord on the Lord's day. You who treat. The assembling of the saints. As being unimportant. And the Lord's day as being just another day. I say to you, you are living in sin. You who treat the Lord's day as just another day. And the assembling of the saints as no big deal. You are living in sin. You are also robbing yourself. Of spiritual nourishment. That you and I so desperately need. You and I so desperately need. And may I say to the parents. I'm saying to all parents. So those of you who think I'm talking about you. I am. You are not using wisdom when it comes to discipling your children. I warn you that if you think that if you leave them home and leave them alone, that God will take care of them, you are in danger of being sorely mistaken in a short amount of time. You have been entrusted for a period of time, and it is this short. To care and nourish their spiritual growth. And you. You are robbing them. You are robbing them of a foundation. A spiritual strong foundation. If you decide to allow them to stay home and not attend worship. Especially on the Lord's day. You would not allow them to stay home from school. But you allow them to stay home from church. You would not allow them. To spend the night at a friend's house on a school night, but you allow them to do so on a worship day. What are we teaching our children about the importance of honoring the Lord on the Lord's day in corporate worship? Spend the night. It doesn't matter. Stay home. It's okay. I'm staying home, too. I warn you. I warn you. 
If you do not act, you will forever regret not taking the responsibility that God has given you over your children for this short period of time. Because when they're gone, they're gone. If you don't believe me, ask those who are older who have kids and their regrets of looking back and saying, I wish I would have done a better job. Go ask them. They're in this church. Go ask them. Go ask them. Let that be a rebuke to you in love. And take it as you will. In our lives, our Lord calls us to be wise as serpents. We are to use our heads to think things through. Not rush into situations with both feet and then only to land and say, what have I gotten myself into? I should have been more patient. I should have used more discretion. I should have waited to see how things played out. In many cases in our lives, that is often what we do. Sadly, it is the spiritually mature who often rush into things when we should have been wise and just waited. Now, I don't mean you should ever press the issue, that you should never press forward. But there are times when we should act, but we should also develop the art of the grace of patience. Taking things at God's pace at his appropriate time. Haven't you read the Bible and see the patience of God as being one of his great characteristics? Haven't you noticed that God is a patient God? Whether it is a promise to Abraham that took 20 years to be fulfilled, or whether it is his children enslaved in Egypt for 400 years before he finally sends to them a rescuer in in Moses, or whether it is 2,016 years that his people have patiently waited for the return of their king and the consummation of the kingdom. If there's something that we must learn about our God is that he is in no hurry. We are ignorant usually to the wisdom of the pace that God moves at. We are impatient people, aren't we? We live in impatient times, don't we? And our world is teaching us to become more and more impatient. And we are, we are more than we know. Infected by the ethos of the age, by, by the culture of the age. We are more infected than we know. We want instant solutions. And therefore, we find it harder and harder to wait on a patient God. The church has followed this culture. Fix my marriage right now. Rather than wrestle through difficulties. Difficulties that were there before you got married. Fix my marriage right now. Rather than learn the grace of God and trusting God every single day. Fix my addiction right now. Rather than learn to take up your cross for the next 50 years. And learn what it means to die to yourself. If I can't understand it right now, I'm not going. I won't come. Rather than put in the work and apply the brain that God has given you to understand the things of God so that you could worship God in the way that he has prescribed in his word for you to worship him. Don't say, I don't understand that language that he's using, so I'm not coming. Get to work. Figure it out. Pick up a dictionary. How bad do you want to know God? Or do you want to eat baby food all your life? Do you need mashed up 
applesauce for the rest of your life. The idea that we simply labor day after day is otherworldly to us. Because we are impatient creatures who refuse to take the scenic route. Take me the scenic route. Get me there as fast as you can. Get me there now. God, act now. You mean I have to work for this? We can learn much from Esther. That there is a time that we must take our time. Be wise. Think things through. Ponder. Consider what is the best way to act. Here is a woman that is wise, plotting, planning and thinking, cultivating the godly patience that is a fruit of the spirit. Dear ones, let us take note of this patience and ask the Holy Spirit to help us in our own lives with this beautiful fruit. To know when to act and to know when to wait. Three. The pride of Haman. Haman goes to the private banquet that he has personally been invited to by Queen Esther. Esther has discerned the time is not right. And she begins to share all of her concerns or to share all of her concerns at the banquet. So she asks for another banquet. And I'm just going to paraphrase all the things. Haman has no objections to this banquet. He loves it. It's only feeding his already bloated ego. So he says in verse 11 and 12, He begins to speak about all of his riches. He begins to speak about and boast about in front of his wife and his friends. Boast about his position. Boast about his riches. Boast about his many sons. Haman appears to have it all. He was surely admired by all his friends. He has riches, many sons, promotions. And not only that, but he has the king's ear. Haman boasted. Of all that he had. And listen, to an outsider looking in, it may seem that Haman does have it all. You may tend to agree with Haman. Yes, you you got it all. But in reality, he was blind, pitiable, and poor. And a few short hours, he would be swallowed up by his own pride. He believed That he was on his way up. (laughs) And actually he was on the downward slide. Haman and many others like him are warnings to us in scripture. Warnings of what? Warnings not to be mesmerized. Not to be hypnotized by the prosperity and prestige of godless people. Don't be mesmerized by godless people. Don't be hypnotized by the prestige of godless people. We would often like to direct this point to young people. As if they are somehow the only ones who are susceptible or most susceptible to the kind of trap that there is in being hypnotized by wealthy, prosperous people. But no. All of us need to hear this. Young or old, never... Never envy the prosperity and prestige of wicked, godly people. Young to old, old to young, never envy the the prosperity of the wicked. Never admire, never seek to emulate those who seem to have everything. No, they don't. If they have not the Lord Jesus Christ, 
They have nothing. They are wretched, pitiable, blind and poor. But they look, they have, they go, they know. (laughs) Solomon knew better, knew that life better than those who boast of it. Those who live it, he knew that life so much better. And here's, here's his response to that life. Ecclesiastes 1.14, I have seen everything that is under the sun. And behold, all is vanity. A striving after the wind. A running after something that could never be caught. Vanity, pointless, futile, meaningless, worthless, Vanity. I'm a good Christian. I would never be deceived by such things, Antonio. Dear friend, let me tell you, better Christians than you have fallen into that trap. Better Christians than you have fallen into the deceitfulness of prosperity. Better Christians than you. One of the youth said this past week, the messages that Antonio brings on Sundays, they're going over my head. I said to my wife, it's hard because their head's not even in the church. How could they say it's going over their head when their head's not even in the church, when they're not even here? And let me ask you, does this go over your head? Do you get this? Does that make sense? I think I think so. Do You think you'll never be deceived by prosperity and wickedness? Better people than you have been to see. You better watch out. You get that, young people? Is that over your head? I think not. Clear as day. If your head is here, then you'll understand. If it's not, you won't. What does the psalmist Asaph say? 73.1 Psalm. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. Why? Asaph, why did your feet almost stumble? For I was envious of the arrogant. And I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph said, I almost stumbled. They seem to have had it all. They seem to be void of all the struggles that are in my life. And I looked to the, in, to the wicked. I looked to the prosperity of the, the arrogant. And I almost slipped and fell. Verse 4. For they have no pangs of death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And all the while, what is happening in Asaph, verse 13, he says, All in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Does that describe your feelings this morning? Jealous of the prosperous, seeking to keep your heart clean all the while you're wondering, wondering, is all of this for naught? Is all of this for nothing? While I suffer, they prosper. Should I even be trying? Is my labor, my dying to self, is it all for nothing? Because they seem to have it all while I struggle. The wicked seem to be enjoying life while I am stricken every morning and every night. The psalmist goes on to say that when he tried to understand it all, he became weary, 
it, 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 it weighed on his mind to even try to understand it all. What is the Christian life given to you? No one cares. It was my birthday. No one said anything. There was a great celebration in my life. No one congratulated me. I give and I get nothing in return. Not just financially, but it seems the more love I give, I don't seem like I'm getting that back. It doesn't seem like God has given me anything and I'm growing weary as a Christian. But then Asaph said in verse 17, I went to the sanctuary of God. And there I discerned their end. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You have made their fall to ruin. Brothers and sisters, don't envy the wicked, godless people. They, they're like shooting stars. They appear bright for a moment, but they are headed toward destruction. All of their strength, all of their prosperity, Asaph says, God has placed them there and all of those things, whether they know it or not, is causing them downwardly to slide. They are slipping and they don't even know it. That was Haman. He was right at the height of his power and he was ignorantly headed down the road to destruction. Never envy people, especially in the media, who the media portrays as role models. As leaders, an actor is a leader. A musician is a leader. Why? Can you explain that to me? Why are these actors and musicians, why do they take the lead? Because they know how to impersonate someone well? Because they know how to be someone else really well? Therefore, we give them all of our trust. Tell us where to go. Tell us what to think. Because they hold the tune better than most. So we exalt them above everyone. Pastors are leaders. Parents, godly fathers, godly mothers are leaders. Haman is a fool. He is the poster boy. For pride becomes comes before a fall. He's the poster boy for pride comes before a fall. Look up pride in the dictionary. Haman is there. Look up fool in the dictionary. Haman is there. He's not. I'm just saying. This is why our Lord so often warns us. To be on guard against the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. So that we are not carried away by the vanities of this world. Be on guard. Put on the full armor of God. Every day. Finally, four. Mordecai's influence on Haman. And I need to read this. Verse 9. Esther chapter Verse 9. 
And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Verse 13. Yet all this, this is his response after all of the boasting. He says, yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife and Zerah said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then joyfully go with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. And he had a gallows made. There's a great contrast being established. Mordecai is at the king's gate. He's not esteemed, even though he has saved the king's life. Here is Haman. He is esteemed and he is prospering from the king. Haman is enraged that this man, Mordecai, will not rise at the presence, uh, at his presence, nor fear him as others do. We are told, or not told, that Mordecai says anything. Mordecai is just going about his life. Mordecai is being Mordecai. Mordecai is not saying anything to Haman, he's just living his life. And in Mordecai living his life, in, in, in faithfulness to his God, His own life is like a sword in the soul of Haman's side. Just living his life. He didn't need to say anything. The very stature of his life that he sat at the king's gate was a sword in Haman's soul. Mordecai affected Haman. Enraged Haman. Simply by Mordecai being Mordecai. Haman, boasting of all that he has, all that he is. And yet there is a a thorn in his side. There's someone who's crashing the party, if you will. It is Mordecai. Listen, it is the existence of Mordecai. The very fact that Mordecai was alive was a thorn in the side of Haman. Do you know people like that? That that are just because they're alive, your life is like, I I wish they would die. Some of you are smiling. Let me quickly move forward. Mordecai's existence has brought the fragrance of an unseen world into Haman's life. Mordecai's existence has brought the fragrance of the kingdom of God into the the nostrils of Haman. And listen, it is repulsing him. It is like death to Haman. The smell, the, the smell of the kingdom of God is like death to Haman. Mordecai was the living fragrance of the unseen God. And Haman is repulsed by it. Here is a man who would not bow down and give this man, Haman, homage. The homage that he believed that he deserved. He was, as Paul described, Mordecai, the aroma of Christ to God. Of those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death to death. To the other, the fragrance of life to life. Mordecai. His own life was a fragrance to death of Haman and a fragrance of life to Esther. It was the unbowed character of Mordecai that brought the fragrance of the unseen and the eternal into the air. And it was this that led Haman To plot, to kill, and annihilate all of the Jews. Question. 
How does your life compare with Mordecai? We live in the full light of of the New Testament. We live on this side of the cross. Do our lives make any kind of impact in the world as Haman, as Mordecai's life did in his world? What kind of aroma are you putting off in the world? When was the last time someone was enraged with you simply because you were faithfully following the Lord Jesus Christ? When was, some, when was the last time that the, the stench of faithful discipleship, faithfully following Christ, repulsed those around you by you just being you? Don't think it's strange, brothers and sisters, if you suffer for Christ But when was the last time you did suffer for Christ? Would it surprise people at your work? Your friends, your family, would it even surprise them that you are a citizen of another world? I didn't know you were from there. You seem to be very much a part of my world. If we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom and children of the living God, And our thinking is governed by our king. That it should make an impact in the world and it should so stab the conscience of the world around us. Mordecai was a man that was willing to experience the cost of discipleship. He was willing to be unbowed to the culture in order to stand for the unseen God. Brothers and sisters, faithfulness. Faithfulness to God cannot but be costly. Faithfulness to God cannot but be costly. It must be costly. In one way, shape, or form. Why? Because it costs the Lord Jesus Christ. If he suffered, we will suffer. If it cost him, it will cost us. The Lord warns us that we are to count the cost before following him. It will, it must cost. If we, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, are to follow Jesus, then we must also understand that we must embrace the cost, just as Mordecai was willing to embrace the cost. And we have this guarantee from the Lord. If you do not take up your cross, if you do not count the cost, then you cannot be my disciple. And we also have a guarantee written in blood that when we stand for Christ, our God will be greatly honored and greatly glorified. Have you? Have you committed your life to Christ in such a way? Have you repented of your sin, turned to Christ this morning? Do you yet know the cost of following, faithfully following the Lord Jesus Christ? Faithfulness to Christ brings an inevitable cost. Faithfulness to Christ brings an inevitable cost. But then I'd like you to think as we close. What really is the cost? I sat with my older brother, who, Lord willing, you will meet one day. 
he recently became a believer. The sharing of the gospel from my mother and my brother Isaiah, Pastor Zay, we sat and I began to speak to him about the cost of following Christ. And he said to me, it seems like you don't have any cost in your life. Like you're not paying any cost. You seem to be okay. That struck me. It struck me in a way that I began to evaluate my life. That if an unbeliever who is a new believer is not obviously seeing the cost, then maybe there are things in my life that are not being explicitly lived for Christ. Would you ask yourself the same question this morning? If someone were to come and to look in my life and say, seems like you're okay. Not that you're not working. That's, that's a different story. But that it seems like in your life you are not facing persecution. What would you say? We will never speak of how we suffered for Christ, I don't think. I think we will only boast about how he suffered for us. So when Haman and the Hamans of this world boast of their riches, may God get, grant us the grace, patience, discernment of unbowed faithfulness to God. Come what may. Let us stand.